Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. We hope the Ringer can provide you entertainment and companionship during this time. So as always, feel free to check out theringer.com, where we're still covering the latest in sports, pop culture, tech, and media. And the Ringer's YouTube channel can provide endless amounts of entertainment. You can find that at youtube.com slash theringer. It's the Ringer NFL Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Kevin Clark. Got a great show today. Warren Sharp, analytics guru, consultant for many NFL teams, uh, one of the smartest guys writing about football on the internet and talking about football on podcasts is here. He will break down the draft, um, some of the metrics that we should be looking at, uh, really interesting nuggets about Joe Burrow and Tua and Jordan Love and Justin Herbert and some of those guys. And then we'll look ahead to the 2020 season as well and some of the sleeper teams uh, that we should be talking about more. Then we have Danny Kelly to talk about his all fun team, just the guys who are going to be the most fun guys to watch in the field in 2020. Uh, So great show. Uh, I feel smarter as I have the last couple of weeks. Uh, I've had some really good, we've had some really good guests and I've I've been really fired up to learn more about football uh, the last couple of weeks and, and, it continues today. Uh, people who are a lot smarter than me teaching me things I didn't know. So let's start with Warren. All right. Joining me first, Warren Sharp, one of the best analytic minds in football, one of the best minds in football, uh, consults for a bunch of different teams. Um, one of my uh, go-to sources to get smarter about football. And uh, I want to thank him for joining us. Warren, how you doing, buddy? Hey, I'm doing all right. Surviving out here on the East Coast. I know you're out on the West Coast, uh, but we're making by and making a buy and uh, happy to join you. Love your show and always, always enjoy when I can get on your show with you guys. All right. So let's talk about the quarterbacks here because this is a, I mean, frankly, I mean, one of the, one of the stunning developments over the past, I don't know, two years is that there are more quarterbacks than there are open spots at this point. And it seems to me that every couple of years now or every year uh, there are, a crop of NFL ready quarterbacks. And that really didn't exist five, 10, 15 years ago. And the hit rate is higher than it ever has been. And I wanted to talk to you to sort of parse through these elite quarterbacks. And I would say there's only two, uh, Tua and Joe Burrow. And then there's a second level and we can get into to all that and, and the differences between them. Uh, you've done a lot of research on the numbers and what these offenses and the way these guys have played. Tell us about how they perform in the NFL. What stands out about that, Warren? Yeah, one of the things that, you know, I think that we need to be paying close attention to, and perhaps more than what we do, is the context in which statistics are earned. And we study those yeah. a lot. I study those a lot in the NFL. But in college, too, it's especially important to kind of get that feel for it. And one of the things that I like to do is I, I think that third downs have a lot of noise. I also think that third downs don't really correlate year over year, especially if a guy's going from system A to a totally new system, um, you know, in terms of what his production would be. And some quarterbacks tend to perform better on third downs, and, and that helps their college stats, but it's not really going to help them as much when they get to the NFL, I don't think. Uh, so I like to look at early downs, specifically first down. And the context that I'm talking about specifically relates to um, how often is this quarterback being put in a position where he needs to carry the load. If we look back, Mm -hmm. there's a couple of good guys that have come out over the last few years I think are interesting case studies. Number one, you know, Patrick Mahomes. He was asked to pass a lot in college. And then Andy Reid, perfect offense, he's asked to pass a lot there. And we see that when... The team was trailing. I mean, they would trail by double digits every single playoff game. They're able to rally from behind because he's comfortable passing in those situations. You have a guy like a Josh Allen coming out of Wyoming. He had one of the lowest pass rates on early downs of any quarterback um, that has come out in the first round. Uh, In fact, it's the lowest since 2015. Uh, That offense, the Wyoming offense, they actually ran the ball almost 60% of the time on first downs in the first half. They were taking the ball out of his hand. I don't like that when I'm evaluating a prospect. I want to see a coordinator who's like, my guy is a first-round talent. My guy is great. I'm going to let him pass the ball a lot. And what does he do in those situations? And what I uncovered with Joe Burrow specifically is just how impressive his passing has been on first downs. Um, He actually was asked to pass the ball 63% of his first downs in the first half last season, Mm. which was the second highest pass rate of any quarterback 
coming out at his class or any of the classes from 2015 through 2019. And it's it was second only to Patrick Mahomes, who was at a 65.5% pass rate. But the difference was that Joe Burrow's just ultra impressive numbers when he was passing the ball on those first down plays. He was number one out of 313 quarterbacks that played at least 75% snaps uh, in the first half of games on these first downs since 2014. So a sample size of 313 of these guys. He was number one in yards per attempt, averaging 13.9. He had the most touchdown passes on these pass plays. He was number one in completion rate at 82%. Uh, he had a very low interception rate, and he destroyed every other quarterback coming out, including pass-heavy, pass-oriented quarterbacks like Mahomes and Jared Goff and mm-hmm. Daniel Jones and Josh Rosen, even Tua, like these guys that were passing above 55% on first downs. His efficiency was off the charts better than these guys. So uh, everybody loves Joe Burrow. There's nothing groundbreaking about that, but I think it's interesting to know that His OC trusted him a ton, called a lot of pass plays. He took that challenge. He ran with it. He delivered extreme efficiency, extreme explosiveness, very low turnover rate. All of these things are very good if you're going to be drafting a guy and an offense in the NFL in 2020 is going to say, can we put the ball in this guy's hands? Can we ask him to drop back and pass the ball on first down? The answer is going to be, Yes, you don't have to baby him. You don't have to coddle him. You don't have to build a stronger run game in order to utilize his skill set. He can pass on first down. He can pass in the first half of games, and he's going to deliver a lot of efficiency. Yeah, and and it's interesting because looking at your numbers that you shared with me, there are guys who have pass rate ranks on first down, and and they're okay. Um, but then their yards per attempt rank on those throws are bad. The completion percentage uh, is bad. The touchdown percentage is bad. Interception rate is bad. Those guys would be Daniel Jones and Josh Rosen. And I think that um, the the deeper you go on these numbers, um, the more interesting they get. Is there a guy that these numbers say we should like more than we're talking about? Um, maybe like a, you know Jordan Love is eleventh in this metric in completion percentage among the 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 top quarterbacks of the last. What is it? Is it six years, seven years? Yeah, six years. Six years. Um, is Jordan Love someone who stands out, or is he kind of in the middle of the pack and, and we shouldn't pay a ton of attention to him? Well, I think he was in an interesting situation. I think he does stand out as being a guy who was asked to pass, who didn't have a lot of talent around him. Yeah. I actually found more interesting was observing where Justin Herbert fell on this list. And he was a guy who the ball was taken out of his hands a lot. I mean, Oklahoma's offense is designed to be more run heavy. So you're going to have guys like Kyler Murray and Baker Mayfield who weren't asked to pass a lot. But when they were passing the football, they were very efficient, right? They ranked two and three in yards per attempt. They both ranked top five in completion percentage and touchdown rate and interception rate. You get a guy like Justin Herbert, he was not asked to pass a lot at Oregon, but his completion rate was second worst of any of these quarterbacks, 18th out of Uh, out of 20, actually third worst, Uh, his yards per pass attempt was very poor. um, And his touchdown rate was fine. His interception rate was good. He was very careful with what he was doing, but he really was the type of guy that you would feel confident in putting the ball in his hands early and often in the NFL, at least based on what I saw from him uh, in his last season at Oregon. So more than being impressed by where Jordan Love fell on this list, let's say, I was kind of, I think it was a little bit of a detractor seeing where Justin Herbert fell on this list. How good, knowing this, how good can Joe Burrow be as a rookie? It's, I feel so important is the situation a guy goes into and his offensive coach. I really feel like the offense coordinator slash play caller is linked at the hip with this quarterback and will be for several years. And you hope to God that you have a good one that's going to help lead this guy. There are quarterbacks who can compensate for bad coaching, um, but you're going to really lower their ceiling. Um, And of course, like a guy like Patrick Mahomes, there's quarterback, there's coaches that can elevate them. Um, I feel like, you know, Deshaun Watson, let's say, uh, he could have performed better with better coaching, let's put it that way, with more advantageous passing situations. Um, But a guy like Joe Burrow, it really depends where he goes. But 
I think the sky is the limit for him. Just the efficiency that he's been able to deliver. Um, I think year one, if he's got a little bit of receiving talent and a play caller that's going to put him in fair positions to succeed. There is really very few things that I would not feel comfortable asking him to do. And of course, a factor I didn't mention is protection. Um, now, if of quarterback does control some of that protection, the OC actually controls some of it too with when he's asking him to drop back. Are we being careful on first and second down and ask him to throw a lot on third down when the defense is pass rushing? Or are we going to ask him to pass the ball on first down when the defense doesn't know if it's going to be a run or a pass? So I think he could play or the coordinator can play a role in that as well. Uh, but yeah, I'm really impressed by these numbers and definitely looking at big things for Joe Burrow, even in his rookie year. On the flip side of the fact that Joe Burrow is going to the NFL after putting up these numbers, the play caller is also going to the NFL and Joe Brady, the offensive coordinator for the Carolina Panthers. I thought that was a great move to go and get him. And, you know, if it's hard, it would have been impossible for the Bengals to do it because Zach Taylor is a play calling head coach and he's not going to give that up and all that. Um, Also, the Bengals are quite frankly, just not going to win any um, auctions for for an innovative offensive coordinator like like David Tepper and Matt Rule were going to, where they're basically they're they're happy to fund um, going out and getting an, a bright young offensive mind. Um, did you come away from this being impressed with with Joe Brady um, above what you already knew about him? And do you think that this can work uh, on a broad scale in the NFL with Joe Brady? I think it can. I think that so much of what a, first of all, he had sick talent, right? We know that. We yeah, know that in part of these numbers baked in is an inherent understanding that Joe Brady was a very creative and intelligent play caller with NFL caliber pieces surrounding uh, Joe Burrow at certain positions. So that being said, what he did was still off the charts great, but Joe Brady, I think his game and the philosophies that he has learned through his stops in his coaching career do translate very well into the NFL. And I think the creativity that they have down in Carolina uh, with Matt Rule and Joe Brady are going to be fascinating um, as we watch these guys develop and work together. Um, You know, one of the things obviously is you want to be able to put the quarterback into good positions and you want to have a quarterback who is going to uh, pass the ball, get a guy who's going to pass the ball on advantageous downs to pass. And one of the things, of course, we've seen in the past, uh, Teddy Bridgewater, a little bit more reluctant to push the ball down the field, uh, being Mm -hmm. kind of put into better situations by his coaching staff to not have to pass the ball as often. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see what they do. Uh, there in Carolina, but absolutely, I think the game and the way that uh, Brady coaches things definitely should have a very quick and measurable impact on how uh, quickly the Panthers are able to reach the ceiling of whatever Teddy Bridgewater is going to give them. All right. So before we move on to what the NFL is going to look like in 2020, uh, any other nuggets that you came across in your research that you think we're not focusing enough about in, in this draft in a couple of weeks? Well, one of the things I just want to throw the perspective out there is just the context through which stats are earned. Um, We talked about this with Joe Burrow, but let's pretend we're talking about Jonathan Taylor, okay, the running back out of Wisconsin. You can just put on his film, and I'm not the guy to be evaluating talent uh, 12 months out of the year, right? I'm the guy who's focusing on the NFL. I don't I, I, although I consult with some teams, I'm not forcing them to pick various different guys in this draft. And I'm really doing a lot of deep diving once the draft picks are made as to where I think this team is going to go with the roster that they have assembled in this upcoming season. But a guy like Jonathan Taylor, for example, you can watch his film. You can also do that in concert with looking at his statistics. But if you don't factor in that this was a team, we mentioned that Joe Burrow was passing the ball on 63% of his first downs in the first half this Wisconsin team passed the ball on just 35 percent of their first downs in the first half this was a run first team with very limited talent at the other skill positions in terms of receiver they were very conservative so defenses are going to be able to predict this team wants to run the ball they're going to call a lot of early down runs they're going to call a lot of short yardage runs and they can play the Wisconsin offense with the understanding that we just have to go out there and try to stop Jonathan Taylor. That makes his statistics that he produced more impressive, in my opinion, 
than a running back who was in a great offense with loads of receiving talent and the defense was playing a lot of passing situations. Uh, on the flip side, another bit of context from a past year was like a guy like Josh Allen. We already mentioned him, but that offensive coordinator, you have a first round talent at quarterback. There aren't many times that a college coach, especially one at Wyoming, is going to be able to coach a first round talent. And yet what did they mm-hmm. do? They went extremely conservative. They ran the ball a ton, despite not really having NFL caliber running backs or an NFL caliber offensive line. They were taking the ball out of josh allen's hands so i'm just that's an interesting point of context we just have to realize you know statistics you might earn or produce whatever you're doing but you have to look at the context through which those stats are earned and what the coaches are deciding to do and how easy or difficult might it be Um, and so i try to evaluate guys it's easy to look at for me at least to read draft profiles by some of the greats out there who are adept at writing those and scouting Mm -hmm. guys on film. It's also easy to look through statistics, but unless you take that level uh, peeling off the onion to understand the context through which these guys were used or through which the stats were produced, uh, you're really not, you're really doing yourself a disservice. Um, College football, there's such a diversity of, of talent on the various different teams and strength of schedule that these guys play and you really have to dig in deeper. So that's one big takeaway. The other takeaway as it translates into the 2020 season, just to mention real quick, is one of the things I'm looking at is you can measure draft capital via the lens of draft points. And one of the mm-hmm. things I'm doing is I'm looking at pre-draft as we sit uh, Thursday night before the draft starts, what is the draft capital that each team possesses? And then I want to see once that seventh round ends, how much draft capital Did they lose or acquire via trades and other things of that nature? Because this is such a weird draft, a different draft. There's so much apprehension in the marketplace. Guys not sure if their system's going to work. Guys haven't been able to conduct the one-on-ones. Guys haven't brought... been able to bring players in to work out with all this uncertainty there is opportunity for various different teams that think they've got a good handle on this class to be more aggressive to acquire more draft capital to draft more players Um, and then might be other teams who aren't really as confident as sure worried about making mistakes and they might end up giving up some draft capital so i want to see the teams that look like they've gotten got an idea as to what they're doing and might get a little bit more aggressive with some moves during the course of the draft. Yeah. And, and, and I think you cannot overstate the role technology will play. Obviously it's virtual draft and, and technology is going to be everything, but I think that how teams view this and whether or not there are teams that get, you know, Adam Schefter had the report today that there are teams that are even scared to have their it guy come into their GM's home or their owner's home or whomever, because they're afraid of, of anybody coming in um, because of social distancing. And uh, you know, does a team get scared and say, we want to trade back or, or we don't want as many picks because we don't feel comfortable with the process. I mean, listen, there are teams that are really, 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 and I would say it's, it's, it's a solid chunk of teams that are really, really unhappy with the way that this is all going to play out. And is there a team, like you said, who said, you know what, we're comfortable in our evaluations, we're comfortable in our technology, we're comfortable in our ability to do trades and and have a, a system set up where we can dominate the draft? And does, does a team like that want to get more aggressive because they see an inefficiency? I think this is going to be the weirdest draft um, that we've ever had. Uh, you know, I think the 2011 draft was strange in the sense that the lockout was was in place and Teams really, you know, they had, what, three days to get their playbooks to the rookies. They couldn't install anything. There's going to be a virtual offseason, and I think that's going to be very strange. But, you know, one of the things I was actually reading about the 2011 offseason earlier today, and everybody said, well, the rookies are going to basically lose a year because they weren't going to get OTAs and rookie mini camps and, and a full training camp or whatever. And then the first two weeks of the season, Cam Newton, who was the first overall pick in that draft, put up better numbers than any rookie in the history of football um, through through the first two weeks. He didn't he didn't miss a beat. And, and I think that the narratives about that offseason were pretty wrong. Um, there's going to be differences. It's going to be hard to actually get out and do physical work um but guys can still run guys can still throw a football alone whatever um it's not going to be the same as it was in 2011 but i think that the ability to navigate the next four or five months is a huge competitive edge and i i totally agree with you and the other thing on that just one one little point to add to that 
like as we're talking about the 2020 season, I absolutely believe that the teams that are more aggressive with their willingness to be creative and their willingness to incorporate data-driven decision-making into uh, their play calling and their decision-making throughout the course of the game are going to have even more of a pronounced edge this upcoming season uh, than they might have in in prior seasons. The uncertainty that this season brings uh, allows certain teams to become uh, get get to a higher level, I think, than they otherwise would be able to. Um, and it's just going to further emphasize just decision-making and the data-driven uh, approach that certain teams are taking with analytics. I think it's going to just put them on a much firmer footing as we navigate through this upcoming season, especially towards the beginning of that season. And I'm not even talking about like in-game play calling. We're talking about like what are they installing in the off season? How are they structuring the limited workouts that they've got with these guys? What are they looking to do? How are they like all of that make, there are ways that you can do it really intelligently and ways that you can make a lot of mistakes. And if I'm a coach, I'm trying to study the best ways and talk to some really smart people to find the best ways that I can implement different things in the off season time that I'll have with these guys. And then I'm keeping my mouth shut. I don't care if reporters are going to ask me, well, how are you going to approach this? How are you going to approach that? We're not telling anybody (laughs) anything. We're going to just do things that we think are in the best interest of our team. Um, And I I think there's going to be a wide range of how different teams approach this thing. It's going to be so much fun to see how it unfolds. Yep, I totally agree with you. All right, let's get to the 2020 season and what that looks like because we've already sort of outlined the challenges and where there's going to be inefficiencies. But I, I'm I'm looking for two groups of teams from you. Number one is teams that went from either bad or mediocre to good, and then the teams that might might go from good to great where I have the chance to go, you know, almost like. Listen, I, I think we all pretty much agree that there's an upper crust of the NFL right now. I think that's probably the Chiefs, obviously, the Ravens. I think that the Niners are in there. And, you know, Adam Lefko was on this show last week and said the Saints are in there. I think there's probably some some debate about that because they obviously got boat raced by the by the Minnesota Vikings in the in the first round. Um I think that it's it's a really intriguing season. I think that a lot there's going to be a lot of carryover from last year to this year because of what we're talking about. Um, because the veteran teams are going to have an advantage because they sort of know where to be and know what to do, and and they don't need a a June workout or a full training camp to get good. Um, but if we were to circle a couple of improvement teams, let's start from from kind of the the mediocre teams or bad teams last year. Who who has helped themselves the most, and you you kind of predict for improvement this year? Warrant. Well, if you look at a team like the Arizona Cardinals, right, they obviously faced a tough situation implementing a brand new offense. And if you think back to what they did, even talking about like talking with their coach, Cliff Kingsbury, about, you know, his his week one results and week two and how they were how they were making out offensively, he admitted that he made a big mistake by trying to hide his offense too much in the preseason. It was something yes. that like a, a guy like me, I was studying his uh, personnel grouping frequency in the preseason and could tell that something was not quite right with what he was doing, that he might be hiding it. And then, of course, it was difficult for them to implement it right away. But now you've got Kyler Murray with a year under his belt. The same offensive system is coming back. They've added pieces, obviously, in DeAndre Hopkins and uh, have a better approach, I think, to the running game. Like This is a team that I think could be poised for a step up um, in that very difficult NFC West. Um, and then, you know, I think a team like the Cleveland Browns, I really like the coaching hire. Uh, I, I think Stefanski is going to be in a very good position there. Uh, I think they have enough talent. And then they added a couple of key pieces that are going to allow him to do many of the same things he was able to do in Minnesota, which was creativity with personnel grouping deployment, right? They were able to use some 12, some 21. They were able to get some 11 if they needed to, but just very creative mix of that. And I think it's going to be interesting to watch Stefanski out from under the um, umbrella of Mike Zimmer and potentially, you know, kind of the philosophy of run first, run early, run often, uh, and maybe a little bit moving into more intelligent decision-making from a play-calling perspective. Uh, I think he's a a fascinating team to watch. Uh, So I think those two, and then a team that was already decent last year, but I think is in an interesting opportune position this upcoming season, uh, would be the Buffalo Bills. 
Obviously, yeah. you've got Tom Brady leaving that division. But if we want to talk about a couple of teams that maybe snuck into the playoffs last year, uh, who maybe have a better chance to go forward this year from the AFC, I would probably say Buffalo. Um, same offense, same quarterback. I know Josh Allen might limit your ceiling, but I think that they were willing to do some interesting things to improve their efficiency midseason, made some nice wholesale changes to the way that they were calling their offense. And I think that's only going to help them. And I really respect Sean McDermott as a defensive head coach. Then on the other uh, conference, I think a team like the Philadelphia Eagles, right? Everybody was talking about how this team doesn't deserve to be there. But the first thing about getting to the postseason for the NFC uh, is being able to win your division. And for them, Dallas switching their offensive system, bringing in a new coach, uh, losing a little bit of talent along the way. I think Dallas might be in more difficult of a position heading into an offseason like this one and, and coming out the other side. And that gives the Eagles an inherent benefit. Uh, they also will be healthier. They can't be much more injured than they were last year. Right. Uh, so if they get some more skill at the wide receiver position through this draft, I think they've got a good chance to not just sneak into the postseason in 2020, but maybe make some noise there. Yes. Um, I generally agree with everything you're saying. Um, I think that the the Cardinals, one of the the funny things about Bill O'Brien trading DeAndre Hopkins for nothing to the Cardinals is that the Cardinals are going to put up huge numbers and Kyler is going to be a really good quarterback next year. Cliff Kingsbury developed as the season went along exactly what you're saying as a really good offensive mind. And I think that um, if you were going to trade DeAndre Hopkins anywhere, uh, Arizona is a bad place to do it. If you, if you, because there's going to be a lot of egg on, on Bill O'Brien's face at the end of this year because of the numbers Hopkins is going to put up that offense. Having said that, um, I agree with you about Cleveland. I mean, I, I, I wonder a lot about whether or not, you know, I was on Mina Kimes podcast last week and we were talking about this, but whether or not we were wrong about the roster they put together last year, or it was just Freddie kitchens being a terrible coach. And I, I, I think that it's a little bit of both, but I'm also all ears, just the idea that Stefanski could instantly improve it. And then there was roster talent there and there is roster talent there and the Baker can be fixed. I think that those things can happen pretty easily with Buffalo. I agree with you. Um, do you think Buffalo can win the AFC? Yeah, that's the thing. If you're talking about moving into that next level, um, they certainly have the defense to right. compete, but do they have the offense to keep pace, right? They have a defense to compete, but can they keep pace offensively? That is a big question. Um, and look, I think that they're making some intelligent decisions um, along the way. I think the way that this team has been built, uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do with this year's draft. But I just have been very impressed overall by the last couple of years of what this team um, has done. And it really, to be honest, it really just entirely comes down to uh, the way that this offense attempts to execute with Josh Allen at quarterback. Um, you, could, you could try to say that you'll have to compete with Lamar Jackson and Patrick Mahomes, which are two freak level quarterbacks and Josh Allen, as good as he is and as creative as he is when he's trying to run the football, he's nowhere near a freak or as gifted as those guys are. So you're playing with uh, a deck that's not fully stacked compared to those other two guys because quarterback is so important in this day and age. So I don't know that I would suggest they could come out and win the division, but I definitely think that they could potentially get to a situation where they are battling in the in the postseason maybe mm -hmm. you know uh against one of those two teams in the divisional round and you you never know anything could happen in that type of game but it would be hard to let's say beat the ravens and then beat the chiefs in route to making the super bowl that would be a very difficult gauntlet for a team like the bills to uh get past i talked to brandon bean yesterday for a story that'll run on the ringer in a couple of weeks, probably around draft time. And I can tell you there is no fear whatsoever. Um, or that was just my sense of it. He didn't say that outright, but he does not seem to be scared of this at home draft. And I think that, you know, they don't have a first round pick because of the Stephon Diggs trade, but I feel like that's the type of, of dynamic front office. That's going to really, I don't know if they're going to be aggressive, um, more aggressive, but I think that they're going to handle themselves fine in two weeks when the draft comes around. I really like Brandon Bean. I think they also have this realization that they have this window. They're fortunate to be in this yep. window where 
Brady is gone, which is coinciding with my quarterback being on a rookie deal. And those two factors, especially when you consider Miami as a team in the division that's rebuilding, I mean, anything you got Belichick, it's not a, a walk in the park to try to get past New England. They're going to come up with something creative at the quarterback position, I'm sure. Um, and the Jets don't really have anywhere to go but up from what they were last season, even though they were a 7-9 and nine team. Um, it's not an easy cakewalk for the Bills by any stretch of the imagination. But I really believe in Brian Dayball. Uh, I thought his play calling was creative. His willingness to change and become more efficient during the course of last season was very impressive. And I think this guy's limited. Another team that I think could be very strong in this draft um, you mentioned, well, that I didn't mention, but I know you have some ties there, is the Indianapolis Colts. Um, that's a team that underwhelmed last season, now has a new quarterback in Phillip Rivers, totally different position than the Bills. They don't mm -hmm. have a quarterback on a rookie deal. But I think you know Chris Ballard and Frank Reich, two of the best at what they do. And I'm excited to see what they'll now do with Phillip Rivers and hopefully a, a strong draft class that they would bring in. Warren Sharp. Thank you for joining us. Uh, next five months are going to be crazy, but uh, wow, it's it's a very strange time for everybody, but it will be very, very strange for the NFL as well. 100% agree, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's Bill Simmons. I just wanted to make sure you were listening to podcasts on Spotify. Here's how you do it. First, search for your favorite podcast on Spotify's app. They have a library of over 750,000 pods at this point. So let's say you're searching for the Rewatchables or the Dave Chang Show or the Ringer NBA Show. Once you find them, click on the follow button. That's how you subscribe. Then click on those letters near the top of the app that say podcasts. All the pods you're following will pop up separated by episodes, downloads, and shows. Wait, it gets better. On Spotify, you can adjust the speed of the pods to seven different speeds. 0.5 times is the slowest. I actually sound drunk at 0.5. You can do 0.8 times. 1.2 times, which is my favorite. Everyone sounds like they just had a good cup of coffee. And then there's 1.5 times, two times. And if you're completely insane, three times. Anyway, Spotify's app connects directly to many of the best automobiles in the world. It even has a CarPlay feature that's pretty cool. Best of all, it's free. Download Spotify on any device and you're good to go. Should you be embarrassed that you're not listening to podcasts on Spotify? Well, I don't want to app shame you. But the answer, unfortunately, is yes. Make the move. Listen to podcasts on Spotify. Back to yours. Okay, now it's time to get smarter with Danny Kelly. Danny, how are you, buddy? I'm doing pretty well, man. How are you hanging in there? I'm doing okay. I'm watching some. Uh, I'm I'm watching some more Netflix sports docu series. Nice to, to simulate having sports in my life. Did you finish the F1? Uh, I did. So I'm a bit of an F1 nut. So I finished that in like a day. <laughs> And now nice, nice. really, and then, and now I'm, I'm watching the Sunderland one, um, Ooh, which is also quite good. I was uh, not as good as the told Formula me to watch one. That. Yeah. It's not as good as the Formula One one because the Formula One one is just like, they have a camera crew with every team and they can just take whatever's dramatic from each race. And so it's something that, and I talked about this with Julia Littman on the bachelor pod party, uh, bachelor party pod last week. Like I've told NFL executives with the Formula One thing. And they are incredibly intrigued by it. Just the idea of, oh. of, you know, almost doing like hard knocks, but with every team. Um, and they're that doing two teams sweet. this year. And so I, I told them about it last March at the owners meetings. And they're generally what they say is that NFL coaches would never agree to right, that level right. of access. And, right. and I don't know, like at some point, I think it becomes really beneficial to give that sort of access because quite frankly, people care People who do not like oh, yeah. Formula oh, One yeah. are texting me about Formula One and being like, I'm no, I know. Formula I, One. People who don't like sports are texting me <laughs> and saying, I like Formula One now. So that's yeah, absolutely. TBD. But I, I think the NFL uh, has thought about how to get more access and, and deliver it in that kind of way in the last couple of years. All right. Um, we're not here to talk about Netflix docuseries. <laughs> we're here to talk fair, about fair. your most exciting players in the draft, the all fun team. Are we going to call it that? The all, the all, we could call it the first team, all fun or the all fun team. I don't care what, whatever, whatever sounds best to you. Well, how many do you have a second team? All fun. <laughs> I mean, I could do how one. How deep I does this depth later. chart go? <laughs> all right. Um, let's start with two 
linebackers who yeah. I, I like both of these guys. Um, and, and you can, you can start with your, I would say your number one draft crush. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong, but go, uh, go ahead, Danny. He, he's probably my favorite player in the draft overall. Isaiah Simmons. I wrote about him this week from Clemson. Um, very, very extremely versatile player. Linebacker, he's listed as a linebacker, but mm-hmm. he kind of played all over the defense for Clemson. He's sort of that Tyran Matthew, um, jack of all trades. But the key with him is he, and, and this is something that I saw in my mentions and um, I think is a real legitimate concern, is like a lot of these hybrid players that can play like corner, safety, linebacker, do a little of everything, but they end up being like masters of none at all of them and just kind of like blah players. Yeah. Um, what I think Simmons is is unique is his ability to be sort of elite at all those different spots, whether he's rushing the passer, blitzing, um, you know, he can flip his hips in coverage and, and get right into guy's hip pocket and stay there as a coverage guy. And he's like a big, you know, he's a tall, long guy. Um, he played over the slot mostly this last season, but I think in the NFL, you know, if you get him with a smart defensive coordinator, he can, he can move all over the formation, whether he's a safety slot corner um, maybe like a will linebacker or whatever. He, I just think he's really, really talented. He's got um, sort of like incredibly long arms that make him even more dynamic as a player because he, he, like you see with his length, he gets his hands up into passing lanes. He makes tackles that he has mm-hmm. no business making because he just has such long arms. Like he'll, he'll overrun a guy, but then still make the tackle just because he's got you know, like an 85 inch wingspan or something like that. So, um, yeah, he's just a really, really fun player to watch. And when I was putting this list together, I kind of just thought of the guys that as soon as you turn on the tape, you're like, oh, yeah, I get it. Like, this guy is good. And, and he was, I think, he's the perfect definition of that. As soon as you turn on the tape, you're like, okay, this guy's going to be a star. Yes. Um, let me ask you, is there a team that that you say, oh, my, especially in the top 10 where he's obviously going to go, is there a team that you're saying, oh my God, I would have a, a basketball, excuse me, a football freak out if <laughs> I said, well, I said basketball because it's looking at the word basketball. You ever do that? <laughs> totally. Yeah. All right. Well, he's got, um, he's got a basketball body. I mean, he's, like he's got a basketball body. All right. Yeah. Okay. So is there a team where you say, okay, this is where I want him to go from a purely football dork perspective? I mean, yeah. Absolutely. If I was if I was choosing it, he would go to the Chargers. I really want Tua to go to the Chargers. I think that would probably make the most sense. But having him pair up with, with uh, Derwin James, Derwin James would just be the most fun thing I could imagine. Um, I think actually the Cardinals is an interesting one too. Ooh. They've got Buda Baker. You know, they've got a pretty underrated secondary. I'd say in terms of that, at least their their safety position. If he if he joins that group. Um, that would be pretty fun to me. So, you know, those are the first couple teams that come to mind, but Panthers make a lot of sense for them as well. All right, Patrick Queen. Yeah, Patrick Queen, another really fun player, another guy that just pops off the tape as soon as you turn it on. He's super fast, um, really fluid athlete, a lot of explosiveness, really good instincts. And so, um, you know how when you're watching, and and I'm not going to compare him to these two guys quite yet because he's obviously got a long way to go. He's like a one-year starter, so there's a lot of development time. But when you're watching some of these future Hall of Famers like Luke Keekley, Bobby, Bobby Wagner, the way that they seem to know like where the ball is going even before the play starts and like get like two steps on the offense before the snap, essentially. Um, you see flashes of that with Queen. And so to me, he, he's kind of the definition of a modern linebacker. He's a little bit undersized, but he can run, cover, blitz. He can kind of do it all. He's a little undersized, but that's fine. I think the way he uses his speed um, is the way that the direction of the NFL is going in terms of like, it's more important to be able to cover these days yes. and be able to blitz and all that. So he's a, he's an ascending player. I think um, flying under the radar a little bit, but he'll probably end up being a first round pick. I agree with that. Uh, is there anybody with queen where you say, okay, maybe outside the top 10, maybe this is a guy, this is a team where he would fit really well. So I've paired him up with a couple teams during the pre-draft process. The Broncos, I think, you know, could use a guy like him in in the Vic Fangio defense. Um, let's see, who else have I given him to before? The Dolphins. I mean, getting a guy like him in the middle of the defense for the Dolphins, I think, could be really huge just because that's like a foundational type player that you can yeah. use to build around. Um, you know, if Brian Flores is anything like Bill Belichick, he like he'll like to have some versatility in his linebacker core. Queen is that guy, I think, absolutely. So those are two teams that jump out to me. All right, let's stay on defense, Danny. Yeah. 
Uh, Neville Gallimore, another guy that could be uh, added to the all name team, I think. And Um, one of Bruce Feldman's freak list alums. Yeah. So, you know, we're both huge fans of that. He is (laughs) absurdly, (laughs) absurdly, absurdly strong. I mean, apparently, according to Feldman, he bench presses 500 pounds, squats 800 pounds, power cleans 405 pounds. Um, so it kind of gives you an idea. How much can you bench press? Uh, in my prime, I was not a very good bench presser. I think like 225 was like where I stuck to (laughs) at the, at the very most. I'm not, I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was like a a weight room freak. You weren't first team all weight room. What about you? I don't know. (laughs) I I have, I, I, I'm never done. I don't think I've done a bench press since I was in high school. An actual bench press. I've got so I've got, I'm working out all the time with weights, but they're just like I've just yeah. I'm just doing like in the house because I can't do anything else because I can't do my regular fitness routine. So I'm just I've got a bunch of dumbbells and I'm acting like an idiot. <laughs> I like dumbbells though. It's it's bad. Yeah, that's a guy. I got two twenty five pound dumbbells, and that's my the extent of my workouts every day. I, I hate like it. it. <laughs> uh, I don't know, man. Um, all right. Uh, so yeah, Gallimore. Um, tell me about his nickname. I love this. Oh yeah. So this is something I found out uh, from Dane Brugler's draft guide. I didn't actually know this until yesterday, but he, apparently his nickname is the Canadian Bulldozer. Oh, he was born and raised in Ottawa, in Canada. Um, and I mean, the Bulldozer definitely makes sense. He's got like the most explosive first. And, step. and, the, and the Canadian makes sense. <laughs> the, you know, put it all together, it makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, the way he plays, he just shoots out of his his stance into the mm. into the offensive line. Um, you know, it, on his tape, he he's kind of one of those guys where I think, you know, he has a, a incredible athletic traits. He's got to still kind of put it all together, um, and and you know, start to make, start to get more moves and consistently and all that. And, and he wasn't a super great finisher, so he's probably going to be like a second, maybe early third sec, uh, third rounder or whatever. But um, I think the the traits are just really fun to watch. I mean, there was times where he was just letting like offensive linemen were just lunging for clouds of dust because he would he would swim move or, or rip past them. And um, yeah, just watching him at, when he was really on, he was really really fun to watch. So he was he was probably one of my favorite defensive tackles to watch. All right, give me a DB. Amik Robertson from Louisiana Tech is I think probably the most fun corner to watch in this group. He is. I I made this comparison in my scouting report. He's like if Steve Smith was a corner. He's just pissed off for greatness <laughs> at all times. Um he he's like, you know, got the like little man syndrome where he just wants to get right up into a receiver's like chest and don't let him go. He's really really good at press. Um tough as nails. He he basically just antagonizes uh his opponent on every play as much as possible. He's also really good ball skills. Um, he had 14 interceptions and 34 pass deflections in three seasons. You know, he plays the run really well. He actually kind of reminds me, I comped him, I think, to Chris Harris in the scouting report, but he reminds me a little bit of uh, Antoine Winfield, the senior. Um, just the way he was incredibly, incredibly physical and sticky in coverage, but also could play the run. You know, that gives him the ability, I think, to play in the slot and the pros. Um, that's going to be kind of a projection because he was mostly an outside guy for Louisiana yeah. Tech, but... Um, I think that's, he's got that skill set and, and the, and the mentality, you know, a lot of corners don't really want to tackle. So, um, I think he's kind of, he's, he's like a bulldog out on the outside. So I like him a lot. He was really, really fun to watch. Brian Flores said that Antoine Winfield senior was his favorite defensive back of all time. Oh yeah. I can see that for sure, man. He, he was just one of those really fun players. I studied up a little bit on him because he, he was for like a few weeks, a Seattle Seahawk. I think they, they ended up cutting him after training camp, unfortunately, but, uh, or he retired. Uh, you know, which whatever, but um, <laughs> super, super fun player, like the definition of a of a physical slot corner. So, all right, keep going. Makai Becton, the offensive tackle, moving over to the offensive yeah, side. Yeah, this is my guy. Yeah, he is. I mean, for starters, obviously, he's just a massive, massive human being who dwarfs everyone around him. Um, and there's there's reps on tape. The way that the Louisville kind of would do their quick passing game. Um, he wouldn't have to necessarily, you know, go into a normal pass set and and, and try and hold a guy for or try, try to hold a guy at bay for a few seconds. They would do like a quick game, and he would literally, and I'm not even kidding, like literally throw pass rushers out, like past the pocket. 
he would just grab them and throw them. And then every once in a while, for good measure, he'd jump on jump on top of him like he was coming off the high rope, at, you know, in wrestling or something. Yep. Um, he's just physically overpowering, physically dominant, huge, huge, massive human being. I mean, he's still got, I think, probably going to have to like refine all his footwork and and his technique. You know, he didn't do a lot of um, like real pass pro reps in college, but um, I think he's got the athleticism, the size, obviously the length to be a really good player. And, and I think he's going to be a top 10 pick. I mean, it, it seems yeah, like... that's what I was going to ask. The NFL, you know, is going to look at his his skill set, his athleticism, his size, all that, and, th- and say, okay, we can turn this guy into a, a technician too. And, and he's just, like like I said, you turn on the tape and you're like, oh my God, this guy dominates, especially later in the season. Um, he's been kind of an ascending player for them. So yeah, he's he's awesome. How much do you think his combine numbers helped him? What what obviously it helped him, but what yeah. was the jump from pre combine to post combine, uh, and just getting him on the radar as an elite prospect instead of a, a, a good prospect? I think it it solidified him. Um, if anything, I want to say before even the combine, he was being mentioned as like a top five pick. You mm-hmm. know, he, like people were connecting him with the Giants already. Um, so I think what it did was solidify him as, as a legitimate top 10 pick. Um, people are like, Oh my God, like this guy is rare as an athlete and that rarity, like the planet theory type thing, someone's going to take, someone's going to take a chance on him early on in the draft. And, um, I can't wait to see who it is. He's an, he's a, he's a left tackle too. Like he's legitimately a left tackle, not just like a guy that, you know, cause a lot of times you see these big players, they plug them in at right tackle or at guard, but he's got, I think the ability to be a left tackle in the league. I am so excited that you just reminded me of the phrase planet theory. Yeah. George Young, former uh, Giants general manager. Yeah, enlightened the re- enlightened listeners, I should say, uh, on what that is. Oh, the planet theory is that there are not many people. It's basically there are not many people like that on the planet. Right. Right. That's, that so so it, you're looking at when you're looking at Becton, you're thinking this is this is a rare uh, athlete. Yeah. Exactly. And you have to take chances on those guys because you can't find a guy like of that makeup later in the draft. So um, right. typically planet theory is, is applied to like defensive linemen, I think, but it, it definitely fits him as well. I believe Indomitian Sue was a big planet theory guy when he was coming out. Yeah. Just like that's, that's someone where you just watch him and you go, oh, wow, he's better than everybody else. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. Next. Yeah. So moving to the offensive skill positions. One guy to really watch, and 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 he was um, not used super heavily at Memphis, but Antonio Gibson, who is a hybrid receiver slash running back for that team, he totaled thirty eight receptions. Oh, I love and this. Rushes. I love this. I love hybrid wide receiver running backs. It almost never <laughs> happens. Oh my god, I'm in heaven. Keep going. <laughs> Anyways, he so he touched the ball seventy one times in, in his in last season, twenty nineteen. And he turned those 71 touches into 1,100 yards and 12 touchdowns. He is the definition of highly efficient playmaker. Um, mm-hmm. Really, really elusive, breaks tackles. Um, there's just some incredible plays where he like looks like he's gotten you know wrapped up and he, and he merges out of it and, and keeps going. Um, he's got some skills as a receiver too, so I don't really know exactly how the NFL is going to see him. I'm guessing, in, in for uh, background, he was the running back at the senior bowl officially. And then he was a receiver designation at the combine. So I think the NFL really doesn't know how they want him to be in the NFL. Um, I think they're kind of like playing it out, but, and and he's probably going to be like a third or fourth or fifth round pick probably um, just based on his rawness. And he wasn't used a ton. Uh, But remember, I mean, he was playing behind uh, Darrell Henderson and Tony Pollard, who are both, you know, making waves in the NFL. Or at least Henderson is going to, I think, this year. Tony Pollard did last year a little bit with the Cowboys. They're both obviously very talented players. Um, so he was playing behind some really good guys, good players. And so that could have been the reason they they sort of limited his touches until this season. So anyhow, he is a very interesting player. He's six foot two twenty eight, so he has the physical makeup of a running back. Uh, but I could see a team kind of wanting him to be sort of like a Debo Samuel um, light type player where you can use him in on end arounds. You can use him on screens every once in a while he can go deep and he showed that, you know, his ability to go deep, but, um, yeah, he's going to be kind of like a super sized gadget player at the NFL level, I think. And that'll be kind of fun to watch. All right. This next guy you compare to 
sort of reminiscent, you say, of Percy yeah. Harvin in the open field. So I got to know more about this guy. Yeah, Lynn Bowden Jr. from Kentucky, um, another player who just has a chip on his shoulder. I mean, he is he's the heart like he plays so hard it's so much fun to watch he just goes all out um he is a slot receiver who was converted to a quarterback he's a a former high school quarterback so kentucky Mm -hmm. went with him at quarterback um because of injury in um 2019 and so he sort of just you know sacrificed for the team became the quarterback he's he's technically more of like a slot receiver but um did a lot of wildcat stuff He has really, really interesting traits in terms of his explosion. He's got like gyroscopic balance. Kind of reminds you a little bit of like Golden Tate, how you can spin away from tackles really easily and keep going. Um, He's shown some flashes as a receiver downfield. You know, he's still pretty raw, and I think that's why he's probably going to be like a fourth-round pick, third-round pick. Um, But he did show flashes as as a guy who can kind of make catches towards the sideline guy who can get in um, behind the defense in the red zone, all that. Um, But like I said, Percy Harvin is the guy who came to mind in his ability to make guys miss in the open field, his ability to destroy pursuit angles um, from defenders. He's a good returner. He's just an all-around playmaker, and I love this guy. I think I'm a little bit higher on him. He's going to be in my top 100 before it's all said and done. Um, but man, I just turned on the tape and I was like, I couldn't stop watching. It was just so much fun to watch this guy. So, um, I think if a team can get creative with him, then yeah, I was going to say, we want him on a, obviously the saints are spoken for here. We want him on a Belichick type team where he's not going to be afraid to use him in a bunch of different spots. Yeah, absolutely. And I know a lot of people are throwing around the Randall Cobb comp in terms of, um, the way the Packers use Cobb early on in his career. And I, and I like the Kentucky part. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, throw him into the backfield and and use that as a uh, mismatch creator. Put him in the slot. Um, give him end arounds, all that stuff. I think he's a, he's just a playmaker with the ball in his hands. And like I said, he, he just, he is, like again, like he's kind of like Steve Smith, just really plays angry, and I love it. So he's a lot of fun. All right, you have three running backs left here. This yeah. is a running back heavy <laughs> list. And this is a... Well, he's a lot of fun running backs. All right, start. Yeah. First starters, running back is probably the most fun position to watch. So that was probably a, a little bit of a bias on this. No, of course. I get that. On, on this list. It gets, it gets the, the further down in football you go, <laughs> the f- more fun a great running back looks. Like yeah. in the NFL, it's like it can be really, really fun. We've learned that. College, it can be incredible. A good running back in high school I mean, they get like, you know, it's like your Derrick Henry. It's just pencil men for 330 yards. (laughs) And then, and then like under high school, that's where it's just, that's, that's might be the most fun thing. When you've got like a a 13 year old who's just, just running for an 80 yard touchdown every time he touches the ball, that's just pure uncut football. (laughs) Yeah. That's like the raw foundation of football is like, you can't tackle me. I'm going, I'm going into the end zone and you try and stop me. So yeah. Um, for for starters, I'll go with a guy who's a little bit more well known, Clyde Edwards Alaire from LSU. Um, he's just really, really crafty with the ball in his hands, whether he's using whether he's out like catching passes as a receiver or getting yeah. um, a run, you know, out of the backfield. He's just really, really elusive laterally. Reminds me of the way he runs of uh, Maurice Jones Drew, just like very hmm. shifty. Um his tape. Let me, let me never, stop you right there. Did you see Maurice Jones Drew's mock draft? Uh I don't know. I did not I don't think so. I I recommend you look at it. Give me the rundown. <laughs> I'm I'm looking at it right now. I'm gonna find it here. All right. Uh, he has, and we love MJD. We love MJD. Absolutely. Having said that, <laughs> he has Justin Herbert number one. Oh, I actually did Tua, hear about this. Tua yeah. number two, Chase Young number three to the Giants. Derek Brown fourth. Joe Burrow fifth. Oh, Isaiah Simmons sixth. Jeff Okuda seventh. And then it gets a little more. Although he has Becton going eleventh, it's um, um, yeah, it's not consistent <laughs> with other mock drafts I've seen. Right, and right. we should we should move on. Um, yeah, I mean, I think mock drafts are uh, conversation starters and situations. Yeah, they started a conversation. <laughs> so there you go. Um, but anyway, speaking of, so back to Edwards Alaire, MJD Light, I, I call him. Um, 
very, very elusive. And on, when you turn on his tape, like you've never seen more guys just lunging for clouds of yeah. dust. Like he just makes guys miss so many times, like multiple times on a one run. Um, just really, really shifty. He's not like a fast home run hitter. Uh, I think he ran like in the four sixes. So people might think that's a knock on him, but he's really, really quick and elusive and tough and, and physical. And so anyways, I love, I love watching him. I think he's going to be a stud in the NFL. couple deep sleepers and I'll just run through these really, really yeah. quickly. These are like, Seventh round slash priority free agent type guys, but JJ Taylor from Arizona came in at five foot five, 182 pounds. I mean, I love that. First of all, it's <laughs> okay. like Muggsy, it's like Muggsy Bogues playing in the NFL. Um, but he absolutely just looks to wreck people who are trying to tackle him. Like you go watch his tape and he's like a bumper car, just like going head in, <laughs> like full throttle right into people. He just wants to like deliver punishment. Um He's got like Wolverine tenacity. He's just very, very fun to watch. He's not like an incredible athlete. Um, he's not going to be a foundation back in the NFL, you know, obviously with the size, but also he's just not as athletic as he needs to be, I don't think. But um, he's very quick. He's kind of like uh, Edwards Alaire in the fact that he's he's quick in the short area um, and, and can make guys miss. And so he's kind of a very poor man's like Darren Sproles type player where if you kind of use him as a pass catcher, um, get him out on the edge. I think he could have a, a role in the NFL. He's just really, really fun to watch. And then Jason Huntley from New Mexico State is kind of like my Philip Lindsay Award type player, like the guy mm-hmm. who he's undersized. I think he's like 193 pounds. Like that's not necessarily a good thing in the NFL. Most most teams want guys who are like 210, 220, and he's he's coming in at 193. But he has the skill set, I think, to be an effective change of pace type back. Um, he ran a four three seven um, at his uh, pro day, like right before kind of the coronavirus shut everything down. They had their pro day. He ran a four three seven. He had a broad jump of ten feet eleven. Both of those would have been first of the combine. Of course, you have to kind of you know pro days are a little bit generous with the with the clock and all that. But um, clearly, very explosive player. Thirty nine and a half inch vert. He was a big play waiting to happen for uh, New Mexico State. Um, great speed. If you turn on his highlight tape. Um, he's just making guys miss all over the place. He finished with 1,090 yards um, in 2019, averaged 7.1 yards per carry, which was among the best in the country. Um, he also had 134 catches in his college career, so he's a very Ooh. good pass catcher. And he had five kick return touchdowns um, in college. So um, the kick return element like gives him a chance to make a team, but it's also a good indicator for future success in the NFL. They've like, there's been studies done that finds like if you have a college kick return on your on your resume, yeah. you're more that's likely big, to have uh, some success in the NFL. Just Steelers, I, so Steelers I think that's very interesting. That. Oh yeah, really? That's, yeah, yeah, I just think it's fascinating. You know, it it kind of tells you about his ability to move around in space and and make things happen. So um, he's my super duper sleeper. <laughs> I don't know if he'll get drafted, but I, I'm going to be watching to see where he ends up. All right, Danny, I, I have a problem here, and it's every single time that we do one of these, even when you give me like your super sleeper, you're so convincing that I want to draft these guys like 10th overall. Like the guys you were like, I want this guy to be like, this guy's a great seventh round undrafted free agent value. I'm like, why is everyone going to pass this guy in the second round? <laughs> so All right. I, feel, Huntley, I feel smarter. <laughs> that's fair. Go ahead. That's fair. Um, I was going to say with Huntley, it's his size, you know, and he played at a lower yeah. level of, of football. He's a little bit slim, like lower body. So I think teams are going to be worried about him, you know, not being able to to stand up to NFL like rigors of NFL tackles and all that. Um, JJ Taylor's just not fast enough. He's a little too small, I think. But but again, it, I just you have to imagine a role for these guys in the NFL, and I think they could both play a little bit of a role for an offense. Danny Kelly, you watching anything good right now? Uh, I just got done watching a pretty good show on Netflix called The Valhalla Murders. It's a Icelandic show, and it's about like a detective it, it, or a detective investigating a bunch of um, murders in Reykjavik, I believe. So it's a really good show. Wow! If you like like me, very dark, dreary settings. I love all these like Nordic detective series because they're all set in like really just drab dreary settings like with snow and, and ice and everyone's very depressed. I don't know why I really love all that. 
This just took a turn. <laughs> All right. On that note, Danny Keller, thank you for joining us. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs> Sounds good, man. Okay. Thank you to Warren and Danny for joining us. We'll be back next week with a couple of shows here on this feed. Um, and that will only increase as we get closer to the draft. Thank you for joining us on the Ringer NFL Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. <laughs>